In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's supposed to be a quiet holiday season, but it's been anything but that in Georgia politics. After David Perdue came out swinging in his campaign announcement, Brian Kemp's supporters hit back with their first attack ad. Millionaire David Perdue built a career putting himself first. Searching for cheap labor, Perdue outsourced jobs to countries like China. He made a fortune for himself, but left communities broken, families ruined. This is Politically Georgia, and I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. Joined on Friday, as I always am, with political insider Patricia Murphy. Patricia, thanks so much for joining a very, very busy political week again. Busy as ever. Yeah, well, you just heard that that initial attack ad. A million dollars is backing this attack, and uh, it's dredging up some of the same issues, some of the same attacks that Democrats back in 2014 and 2020 leveled against David Perdue, saying essentially that he is an outsourcing king um, who sent jobs to China and Asia rather than keep them in the U.S. when he was a corporate executive? Yeah, on the one hand, um, you would think that if these this series of attacks on David Perdue have never stopped him before, why would anybody go back to the well again on those attacks? Um, but with particularly with the Trump crowd. Outsourcing to China has been a real talking point for Donald Trump. And I think it's because he really um, believes it and he gets the best response from his crowds when he talks about China, China, China. So if the Kemp campaign or the Kemp super PAC here can successfully tie that issue around David Perdue's feet, that would be extremely helpful. I don't know if it's going to be successful, and it, but it also may be the first time some uh, conservatives are really hearing hearing this message in this context. It's been coming from Democrats. And if you are a committed conservative Republican, those those attacks tend to be largely dismissed. I think Republicans tune out of that kind of an attack. But to hear it from a Republican group attacking David Perdue, you know, it could land. I'll be interested to see what the response is from voters. Yeah, it has been, I guess it's bewildering, fascinating. I don't know what the best word is, but to see the same attacks we saw John Ossoff use, we saw Michelle Nunn use, um, but really, you know, fresh in our memories from John Ossoff just earlier this year, really, um, be, now being exploited by by Governor Brian Kemp and and his supporters. And that is not just that he's an outsourcing king, but also the allegations that he profited off the pandemic. Um, that he's out of touch with regular Georgians because he's a multimillionaire who lives in a, a state on Sea Island. Um, that he he generally uh, isn't a true conservative, right? All those attacks are being dredged up again, and it's it's it whether or not they work, 
it is also getting under the skin of David Purdue supporters who feel like um, it's 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 a betrayal in a sense. You know, just as Kemp supporters feel like David Purdue even entering the race is a betrayal. Yes, we know there are going to be a lot of hard feelings on both sides of this fight between Kemp and Purdue and all of their sundry supporters. I do think, though, that the attack on David Purdue about profiting during the pandemic, about trading stocks related to pandemic uh, kind of affected companies while he was sitting in these uh, committee hearings, uh, many of them closed committee hearings about the nature of what was about to come with the pandemic, that did work for John Ossoff. That really landed. And I think it played a big role in John Ossoff getting traction against David Perdue. And so I think that it is an attack that um, could certainly work again. And there's very good reason that uh, the Kemp team would go with this because uh, they certainly have polling to show that this is really an ongoing vulnerability for David Perdue. Nothing has changed about David Perdue in the last 11 months. He still lives on Sea Island. Um, He still is the person he was before. He still is a former CEO. And we haven't seen a lot of him uh, doing anything to change that impression. So this is an attack uh, that I know we will hear over and over again that uh, David Perdue is not one of you. David Perdue profited off of your pain. And who do you want to choose between these two gentlemen? Yeah, you're right. I mean, David Perdue hasn't, nothing's changed about David Perdue in the last 11 months, but his message over China and outsourcing has changed over the last seven years. And that's, that's fascinating to me too, because back in 2014, when Democrats and some fellow Republicans doing the primary um, were also attacking him over uh, his, his support for outsourcing jobs as an executive at a number of companies, Hagar, Sarah Lee, um, uh, uh, Dollar General, um, he said at the time he was proud of that record. That was that was just good business practice. That was a shrewd economic strategy uh, to 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 cut costs and to save the company money. Well, fast forward to now and in this new era where China is 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 a much greater adversary and is a is a byword for 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 basically an enemy of capitalism. Um, now David Perdue is not using those statements. Now he's cut out. Uh, mentions of China from his campaign ads because back in 2014, he'd run campaign ads showing him and his wife, Bonnie, on the top of the Great Wall of China to show his his worldly uh, viewpoint. No, no longer is he doing that. And now he is, instead of embracing the fact that he outsourced, he is accusing his opponents of being closet communists. Like that was, that was essentially what he called John Ossoff in the last campaign, trying to link, falsely trying to link John Ossoff to the Communist Party because his his documentary company sold a film that was distributed through a Hong Kong company that paid them about $1,000 each quarter. Yeah, I think another economic message that we're going to be hearing from David Perdue, and we already have, is this idea of eliminating the state income tax. Instead of having the focus be on David Perdue and David Perdue's wealth, he is pivoting here and trying to really focus on Georgians and their wealth. And so as the state's economy continues to just roar along here, um, especially with that announcement that Rivian is going to be bringing uh, 7,500 to 10,000 jobs uh, east of Atlanta. I think I can. we definitely continue to hear from um, uh, conservatives, why isn't there at the very least an income tax cut? Um, whether or not there is an income tax elimination is 
impossible to imagine. But David Perdue is going to be getting some more um, research and details on his plan to make it look like it's more of a reality of a possibility and not just a talking point in a campaign. And I think it's smart to focus on Georgians instead of himself when he's got so much money. Um, I think his message is more, let's share the wealth and let's not be taxing Georgians. And it's tough for a governor in reality to cut income taxes, let alone eliminate them. But this is a campaign reality. It's not real reality. And the reason why you say it's impossible to eliminate income tax entirely is because that's $14 billion plus of revenue and there's no plan to replace that. But I want to, you know, something else that that came up with, with this ad that struck me. This was the first real use of this new state law that Governor Kemp signed a few months ago that creates these leadership committees. And this sounds boring, but it's very important in Georgia politics, this, this cycle, because this allows Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, um, le- legislative leaders from both parties, and the party nominees for certain offices once they're, once they're cemented later this year, this allows them to raise unlimited cash and to spend it how they see fit. And even during the legislative session when traditional fundraising is, is barred. And this is a giant advantage for an incumbent governor like Brian Kemp because he can go and raise hordes of, of money from lobbyists and from special interests and from businesses and from supporters that defy the general contribution caps uh, that, that, that usually govern this process. And then he can use it to fund these types of ads. So that's, this is a $1 million opening attack. You know, this is money we don't, we're not used to seeing until later in a campaign and we're about a year out and he's already using this, this money. And this is an advantage that of course, David Perdue and Stacey Abrams don't have. David Perdue wouldn't be able to raise this, use this sort of leadership committee, uh, unless he beats Brian Kemp and becomes the GOP nominee. Same with Stacey Abrams. She can't use this until she is formally becomes the Democratic nominee in May, the May 24th primary. So Brian Kemp has basically about a year head start because he started raising money through this leadership pack almost as soon as it was signed into law back in, uh, it took effect uh, over the summer. And what's amazing is that when this entire leadership committee process began and we started watching the legislation go through the General Assembly last year, it was really known to be a device for Brian Kemp to even the playing field with Stacey Abrams because Republicans fully expected Abrams to be in this race and they really knew that Stacey Abrams has become this unbelievable fundraising juggernaut for the Democrats and she has raised $100 million since she lost her last race, which is just totally unheard of. And she's done that for Fair Fight Action, which is the um, the nonprofit uh, but political organization um, that has gotten involved in a lot of uh, issue fights around the country, especially voting rights. So she has the ability to raise money in a way that we have never seen a Democrat in this state able to do, um, particularly someone who is out of office. To me, it is just unbelievable to watch. And so the Kemp campaign um, now has this at their fingertips, but they thought it was going to be to use against Stacey Abrams. And now it's to use against a Republican. It's to use against 
David Perdue, which was never in the cards. That was never contemplated when this leadership committee idea was created, but it certainly will be to his advantage um, because these are unlimited dollars. They are not subject to the typical campaign finance limits that we would see generally. Um, there are going to be outside dark money groups that can raise unlimited amounts, but this is um, the only vehicle uh, where somebody could give to a sitting Republican governor who is very, very powerful in that capacity. Um, it gives them uh, a place to put their money in a way that is totally new and a big advantage for Kemp over Purdue right now. Yeah, and an advantage that, yeah, as you mentioned, was not envisioned to help him against the Republican challenge, maybe. But once we started hearing um, serious talk about David Purdue running, it was that one of the first things that Kemp's aides and advisors pointed out is, hey, not only do we have the power of incumbency and and already have a very big war chest, we also have this legislation that is you know, just kicking in at the right time for them. You mentioned also Stacey Abrams uh, and her fundraising uh, uh, powerhouse abilities. Well, she's obviously in the race as well. She's making the rounds, including at a fundraiser last night. And I guess when people ask me what's the difference between me and the current governors, I like Georgians. I like all of us. I like the people who agree with me and the people who don't agree with me. Because I was raised to believe that you don't have to agree on everything if you get the fundamentals right. Now, Patricia, this epitomizes the situation she's in right now. She can talk about unity and about bringing people together and all that nice stuff that Republicans really can't talk about right now because there's that brutal Republican infighting between Purdue and Kemp where they're going after each other. They're talking about each other's economic records and their platforms and their support for Trump and all that other stuff. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams has consolidated Democratic support already behind her. There's no, there's no real foe in, in her primary uh, lining up against her. Even if there is, there'll be just token opposition later on down the road. So she's able to just sort of stay above the fray and kind of look down at the Republicans bashing each other. It reminds me so much of the dynamic that we saw in the Senate race in 2020 because we had Raphael Warnock in a primary um, against both Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins. But because Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler were both vying to really pull over the lion's share of Republican votes, those two went at each other like cats and dogs, literally. Raphael Warnock came out with an ad about dogs, about puppies, and saying, uh, you're going to be told that I'm a really terrible person. They're going to tell you I don't like puppies and that I eat my pizza with a fork. Don't believe any of those lies. And it just gave him all of this running room and all of this space to put out positive ads about himself. He didn't need to go negative on anybody. So he didn't drag his own negatives down by going negative against somebody else. While he was able to do that and just keep his own really, truly pristine image up, the Republicans just blew each other apart. Now we have a very similar dynamic with Purdue and Kemp going at it. Purdue and Kemp's supporters in particular are going at each other. Um, and it just feels so early for it to be this ugly that we know um, it's going to get worse from here. I had one uh, Kemp ally who um, has a good bit to do with the ads that are coming out against Purdue. He was like, this is going to make the fireworks on New Year's Eve look like child's play. This is going to, this is about to start and, and get real. So scorched earth, total war, yeah. <laughs> fireworks that look like, make New Year's look like fire, uh, child's play. I mean, this is, this is going to be ugly, brutal. All those words that we predicted it would be, they're already come to coming to pass. And it's hard to imagine how, how much more this gets stepped up um, between, between now 
and and next May. But for Stacey Abrams, the big question is a little bit different. Is is can how can she take advantage of this of this Republican infighting? Because we've been here before where you know we've talked about divisive primaries and the Republican side of the aisle and and in a relatively unified Democratic support between whoever their nominee is for statewide races. And of course, seeing Republicans go on to win in some in some cases rather easily. That of course changed in 18 when Stacey Abrams narrowly was defeated by Brian Kemp. And then in 2020, when Democrats flipped those two U.S. Senate seats and Joe Biden won the state. So now they at least can point to success in the past. But still, Stacey Abrams does have to worry about about a united Republicans, you know, using using her to sort of rally uh, conservatives. Because if there is one unifying force in the Georgia Republican Party these days, and our polls show this, it is Stacey Abrams who is sort of uniquely villainized um, her her disapproval ratings among Republicans are in the 90s in in pretty much all of the AJC polls, even if her overall approval ratings are hovering more closer to 50% or above that. So she has been this galvanizing force and, and one that, you know, Republicans will have longer than they did in the runoffs to get on the same page. In the runoffs, they only had nine weeks to get behind Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, um, and particularly Kelly Leffler after her divisive primary. Now they'll have well, months to do so, whether the primary ends in May or there's a runoff uh, weeks later, they'll still have a long, longer runway to get on the same page. Yeah. And if you go back to 2018, Brian Kemp has been here before. He was in a very ugly primary, really tough, contested primary um, against other Republicans and came out of that primary and was able to unify Republicans. And so he's uh, done this before. Whether he gets out of this primary, we're going to find out. But to your point, um, Stacey Abrams, to me, feels almost like the counterpoint to uh, Donald Trump for Republicans. As much as Donald Trump is dividing this party, is running his own candidate against a sitting governor, Stacey Abrams is waiting out there for Republicans, sort of like a lighthouse on a shore. Republicans know they're going to have somebody that they can galvanize against once they've gotten this family feud put behind them. And I asked Stacey Abrams about how she would play this, and she said, essentially, that's not my problem. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> and it's not on, our problem. <laughs> yeah. She said, I'm focused on solving problems for Georgians. And, and, and you know, she mentioned her campaign um, slogan, which is One Georgia. Um, and, you know, she goes, I'm not of their, of their infighting. I'm not of that faction. I am, I, am, I am in a different place in this race, which pretty much summed it up to me. And we'll see, you know, how she can make the most of this, if she can make the most of this. But right now, it's also, you know, something of a challenge for her too, because it does mean less media attention. You know, believe it or not, as someone who is who is who's, who has gotten such high profile attention, um, even since her, even more, I think, since her her defeat in twenty eighteen, um, there will be a lot of focus. You know, she'll be mentioned a lot of those stories, but there'll be a a kind of headline screaming headline focus on the Kemp Purdue clash. Um, you know, which is good and bad for it. Better for her than worse for her, but still, it means that it'd be a little bit harder um, for her to to capture that amount of attention. Yeah, it definitely gives her and her team a good bit of breathing room uh, that yeah. they would not have had if they had had their own primary to deal with. And we heard from Lauren Grow 
Wargo last night, her campaign manager, who said, uh, telling uh, supporters what to expect over the next several months. And she said they're going to be a little bit dark over the next several months. They're going to be working on organizing, uh, getting their uh, campaign team on the ground, and then uh, to really start to look for the Abrams campaign to ramp up in the spring. Uh, David Perdue and Brian Kemp have no such plans to stay dark until no. the spring. And so it sounds like the Abrams campaign is going to try and take advantage of this downtime, uh, meaning downtime just that they're not going to be at the center of this fight uh, that they had expected to be and that we expected this to already be the rematch between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. That is going to have to wait. And that lets the Abrams campaign really get their feet underneath them, raise money, not spend any money, uh, maybe even look to raise money for other Democrats, uh, strengthen the state party, strengthen other campaigns uh, that they're going to be running on a ticket with, and uh, get ready for uh, the general election. But they just don't have the same headaches that uh, Brian Kemp seems to have drawn for himself so far. And going kind of silent until April, or at least going a little bit under under the radar until April, is something that only Stacey Abrams can do. I mean, you know, when people were talking about what other Democrats could get in the race if she didn't, the, the real answer at this stage was basically none. Um, because any other Democrat who got in th- this late stage to go up against either David Perdue or Brian Kemp would have to have the fundraising power that she has, the name recognition and all that. And Stacey Abrams is someone who can afford to go under the radar until until the spring because she already has that. She already has that ability. Um, she doesn't have to have large scale events or the or the organization because um, she already has that organization. She's kept Fair Fight going, which has been it's separate from her campaign, obviously, but it's also been sort of a a, a campaign proxy in a sense, attacking Kemp for conservative policies, promoting her own agenda um, about expanding Medicaid, boosting education funding, that kind of thing. So it really does strike you as something that, you know, only a Stacey Abrams can get away with because she's, she's, she's got that, that powerful platform already. Yeah, she came out and announced her campaign the day after the Atlanta mayor's race. And it felt like even then she didn't even really need to announce her candidacy, if not to assure other Democrats that she is indeed running for governor. But she does not need a head start organizing, raising money, building her name ID. That is all taken care of um, as soon as she wanted to flip the switch. Also, this chance to stay dark for a little while is going to let her maintain her really sky-high positives um, that she's managed to build with independent voters because of a lot of the press coverage that she's gotten since she lost has been extremely positive. It's been more lifestyle and featurey. So she's been presented as somebody really fighting on the right side of the fight for voting rights, um, doing other good works for good people, doing a book tour, being a romance novelist, being a mystery novelist. Um, it's all, it's None of that is the kind of scrutiny and vetting that you get as a candidate. So for her to be able to go a little bit dark here and postpone that process is uh, going to be to her benefit as well. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. When you're done listening to our podcast, or even while you're listening to it, we really encourage you to read and subscribe to The Jolt. That's the daily political newsletter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, myself, and Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent, round up every nugget of political news and information that we can and deliver it to your inbox every weekday. That is the morning jolt, one of the many benefits you get as an AJC subscriber. And Patricia, today's jolt we focused on the democratic response to the Rivian deal, which we're about to talk about. Um, The Rivian deal is a $5 billion electric vehicle plant that we talked about earlier on this podcast, and we broke the story about weeks ago. Um, This is a plant that that the governor is going to focus on as a sort of centerpiece of his economic message for re-election. He's going to be saying, hey, you know, my, my approach to the economy is working, and here's why. It's the largest, he calls it the largest single economic investment in Georgia history. It's going to bring at least 7,500 jobs, possibly more than 10,000. It's one of the biggest automotive plants in the nation. It's going to be built in a rural area uh, where there is some trepidation, but there's also some excitement um, in in East Georgia. And um, it's going to help seal the state's reputation as a growing green energy hub. Um, so that's all to say that Brian Kemp was very enthusiastic about this, and we were there Thursday when he officially announced uh, this project. Before he had a celebratory press conference, I was able to sit down one-on-one with Governor Kemp and talk to him about how it came together. From my perspective, like I don't think we were on their mind early on, hmm. and all we were trying to do was just like, we got y'all just got to get to Georgia. You just need to give us a chance to show you this site and sell you on what we got. And we knew if we could ever get them here, we could make a really good pitch. And that turned out to be the case. Uh, Yeah, it turned out to be the case indeed. And there's a lot of competition for this deal, Patricia. Texas was one of the the finalists. The the city of Fort Worth alone had offered $440 million in in incentives. And that's not even counting the state the state perks that were offered by the state of Texas. So we're talking about a huge win, economic win for Georgia. And the first auto plant to relocate to Georgia and to build in Georgia since Kia decided to build its plant at West Point back in 2006. There are two pieces that I am so fascinated by with this Rivian story. Um, And you touched on one of them when you were talking about Georgia becoming a leader in green energy uh, production and green energy jobs. If you look at where a lot of these new plants are going in, it's in the most conservative parts of the state. Dalton has a new solar factory. Um, If you drive past Perry, Georgia, you will see a field of solar panels instead of a field of cotton like you used to be able to see. Uh, You see uh, the SK Battery Factory going in in Commerce, Georgia, east of Atlanta. And it is just unbelievable to me how this is transforming the state and also who is taking credit for these these kinds of initiatives. When you talk to Republicans, uh, they will say these are green energy jobs, but and they are coming here because Republicans have created a fabulous environment for businesses to start and grow. 
not be overregulated and not really have to have a heavy union presence if they don't want to here in Georgia. And so that's why the it doesn't matter what kind of factory it is, it's a great place to start a business. If you talk to Democrats, they will say these these groups, these companies are coming into Georgia because of the national policies that Democrats have enacted to push uh, credits for green energy, uh, not just uh, production, but also consumption, that it's the Democrats who have made it specifically attractive for green energy companies to start and grow anywhere. And so they can both be right at the same time, but they all want credit for it. And it, I love that uh, when Stacey Abrams was responding about um, the news about Rivian, which is really a piece of excellent news for Brian Kemp, a huge win for him that he has been going after for a long time. She said, well, you know, I think that our Democratic senators uh, get the credit because they have really been a part of pushing the kinds of policies that are going to benefit these companies long term. And so um, we know heads exploded all over the state, um, but it's uh, we've been hearing these dueling messages, but all claiming credit for what is, um, to me, uh, it's just a great time to be in Georgia covering this kind of a story because it feels like it can really transform um, the economy here and also start to address climate change. And um, those are two storylines I didn't know we would be writing about here in Georgia. That we didn't know we'd be in the thick of. You're you're exactly right. Um, and and you know we're talking about 7,500 jobs, very well paying for the most part jobs. There, Rivian is already hiring, a five billion dollar investment as we mentioned. Um, but you know there's also with an auto plant, there's also this halo effect of supplier jobs and service industry jobs and others uh, that this creates and. We're talking about thousands, maybe tens of thousands of jobs overall of, you know, seatbelt makers and steering wheel fashioners and all these different um, side jobs that, that come into play um, with this type of factory. So there's, there's, there, this is going to transform the region. Um, the governor called this generational type of project. Um, and, and, I can't find anyone who disagrees with them on that because because it's going to have such a profound impact. And that's leading to some concerns too about whether it'll change the infrastructure in this part of Georgia, um, whether it will uh, tax the uh, the school system, um, the healthcare system, uh, and change the way of life for a very kind of sleepy rural area. Um, I talked to a former mayor who's now a state rep in that area who said, Jasper County was the, the this gem, this diamond in rural Georgia, and now it's been uncovered. And she was very excited about it. But it also will lead to some backlash from, from local f- residents who, who don't, don't want their way of life changed by this massive plant that's going to bring in cars and traffic and new businesses and new homes and a different way of life. Yeah, I think it'll just need to be managed carefully. I was in Buckhead, Georgia earlier this week, uh, not the not the suburb of Atlanta, but the actual town of Buckhead, Georgia. It's two exits up from Rutledge, Georgia, which is where uh, the Rivian plan is going to be. And Buckhead right now is a town where they have, um, you know, that old downtown that has been mostly boarded up, these really lovely brick buildings, and there's nobody there. They could have businesses in them. They are commercially zoned, but there's just simply not the demand. It's sort of one of the those towns that feels like it's dying. This will change that very quickly. Uh, this will bring people to that area looking for homes to live in, subdivisions to build, sandwiches to eat on their lunch break, schools to send their kids. You just feel like it's going to really transform this area 
parts of this area desperately need to be changed, but they also, to your point, are very uh, cautious and guarded about their way of life, their rural area that they moved to uh, or were born in, grew up in, have stayed in because they like it that way. This will be a change for a lot of people between Athens and Atlanta where this is going. And so it will be just uh, really fascinating to, to watch the change and to see the benefits and the costs that come with it. You're exactly right. And we'll be watching that very closely not only over the next year, but over the next 10, because this is going to be the sort of story that, that lives on and continues to affect our community in many, many different ways. Uh, before we go, we want to remind you that coming up next week on Politically Georgia, our city hall reporters, J.D. Capaluna and Will Nobles, here we join us to dig into what Andre Dickens must get done as he becomes Atlanta's next mayor. Also, go check out the Bowtie Chronicles, where our Falcons beat reporter, D-led, D-Orlando Ledbetter, previews the Falcons' playoff chances as they get ready to face the 49ers. And over on Southern Fried Soccer, Doug Roberson digs into Atlanta United's 2022 schedule, including about 15 games that are nationally televised. Over at Access Atlanta, Rodney Ho introduces you to one of the writers for South Park, who has transformed his basement into a 1980s-era video rental store stocked with 6,000 VHS tapes. I don't think my kids would even know what a VHS tape, and I don't think many of my friends would either uh, anymore. Well, we remind you, we love to hear your feedback. We're loving all the text messages and the, and the emails and the tweets and all that about Politically Georgia podcast. Please rate, review, follow, share, and subscribe. And thank you again for listening. Thank you, Patricia, for joining us. And thanks to Jay Black for his wonderful job producing, as always. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,